Welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. This podcast is a series of conversations with educators, academics, and lifelong learners to try and deconstruct some of the stereotypes around education. My objective is to focus on the passion and humanity within teachers and educators and provide a platform for the myriad of voices within the education system. If you'd like to know more about me, please head to my Instagram page at educatinglaura. Hello, welcome to the bonus episode dedicated to analysing argument, a key component of VCE English. I have Ben from the English Lab on to talk all things argument analysis, to try and find some clarity from the study design and to give students and teachers some strategies for ensuring that analysis is really met, which is the crux of this task. I do reference a podcast, the Teachers Talk Texts podcast, all around analyzing arguments, and I'll make sure that I put that podcast in the show notes. And it's a podcast with Claire Mackey and Emma Ford, and they talk all about this particular task. I highly recommend that podcast. I would like to say too that I make a comment and it's not a criticism, but they do talk about arguments and structuring your analysis based on arguments, but didn't clarify the idea of what an argument actually is. And so I made a conscious effort to make sure that that was very clear in this podcast. So I do believe that this podcast works really well in conjunction with that one. And I would like to apologize because I'm pretty sure in the conversation that I say Claire's last name incorrectly. It is Claire Mackey. If you know anyone who is studying VCE English or is teaching VCE English for the first time, please share this podcast with them. If you like it, please share on social media. Tag me at Educating Laura and Ben at The English Lab. And I hope you really get a lot out of this episode. Hello, Ben. It's so lovely to have you back. How are you? Yeah, really well. Thanks, Laura. Thank you for having me on. Looking forward to, uh, to having a chat. Pleasure. And I need to thank you for answering my SOS call on Friday after I had this double with my year 12s with a clear path in terms of where I was going. And when discussing structure and how to do this particular task, I had so many fall on faces that I thought I need to create a resource for these kids that have pretty much had a very non-existent almost year 11 year in terms of developing skills or very basic skills I really, I'm so, so grateful to have you on. Oh, you're welcome. The first question I wanted to ask you was the old study design, this task was called language analysis. It's now called analyzing argument. So I would love you to tell me what that means and what the objective of this task is because it has changed. Yeah, it has. And so a lot of it for mine has, has remained very, very similar, but I think that the clues in the title with it being, you know, about the analyzing argument, it's, it's. Rather than uh, students just being able to pick out small little features throughout, they need to be able to have that more holistic understanding of how argument has been used. And so rather than it just being, okay, you know, in the second paragraph, she used that word. So that elicited this feeling. And then in the third paragraph, she used that word. It's about being able to be that little more holistic, to be able to take that step back and say, okay, there's all these different ways. And and so something that I uh, that I say to students is that, they don't need to get hung up on exactly what an argument is. I think because we teach that way, sometimes going, right, find the arguments. I think sometimes they can get concerned that it's like, well, 
you know, there's a certain amount of arguments here and everyone knows them, but I don't or anything like that. And that the use of, the, you know, the definition of the word argument when it comes to this can be a little bit loose. It, it, it can just be, you know, an approach that they take or a way that they go about something. But for me, I think the main difference, uh, and I don't think there has been a huge shift, you know, away from what it was when it was language analysis. But for me, the main difference is that, you know, it, it requires students to be able to take the small things, the small little two word quotes or the tiny element of the image that they notice but be able to discuss and analyse those through the lens of, okay, what was that helping the writer achieve in terms of an overall approach that they were taking or an argument or a way that they were trying to persuade? So I wouldn't be worried uh, if I was a student with this where it's about, okay, there are, you know, there's six arguments and the examiner and my teachers know what those arguments are and I've got to find them. It's definitely not that that uh, that sort of, you know, hidden argument and you've got to, you know, be a detective and find them sort of thing. It's more about... Mm -hmm being able to show that you understand all the different ways that, that the writer has used different arguments and approaches to, to, to bring out that way of getting people back to point of view with, um, with what they're trying to say. So, yeah, just making sure that it, it also gets away from the techniques. And I, I know we're going to probably speak about that later. Probably a move to ensure that, you know, there isn't just that technique hunt that it's like, you know, second paragraph she used a rhetorical question, third paragraph she used inclusive language, fourth paragraph... Those things can still be used, but it needs to be written in the context of overall, what were the different arguments that all came together and the different ways that it all came together in order for them to, you know, get their contention across and try to persuade people to, to their view. I love that. And it does feed into the things that I try and tell my kids in terms of how to annotate. So I always ask them to read first and only look for the contention, the target audience and any tone and shift in tone. Yeah. And I think that those are really good things to start off because it makes it broad really from the beginning because that's all you're looking for. Who are we specifically targeting? What's the overall contention? And how are they using tone? And often that tone and shift in tone will then lead into the next thing about, well, what are the big strategies and arguments here? As you said, I love the fact that we can talk about that idea of argument and approach rather than just what's a specific argument because I think kids can get really, really focused on the semantics of words, you know, at what is an argument. So, again, it's an approach then allows, I think, for much greater understanding of how to take on that task because when you think of an argument, it has to be a why, but maybe yes. it's not. Maybe yeah. it's actually a how, how they're doing something to gain credibility or to gain trust or something like that, which I love. I love that you've said that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a, when you're talking about having them, uh, having your students read through it the first time, just looking for tone and things like that. I think that, you know, one of the strategies and, and the things that they can practice with this is, is to take a look at, at being uh, at, at where the, that tone shifts and where those things move and where, and where it where it changes because in the exam you can be guaranteed that there's going to be that sort of you know tonal shift to, to some other way and and that you know it shouldn't be I wouldn't be saying to students that it's as easy as right take a look at the start of each paragraph and, and tell me what's different you know every paragraph is going to be something different but getting used to that idea of being able to pick up on, oh, wow, everything's just taken a bit of a change here. The, the way that they yeah. were arguing something has changed. They're now trying to relate to, to the reader or they're trying to be a little more sympathetic and, and they sound different. So, yeah, I think it's really valuable for students to be able to see that because they are the major things that they need to be able to come back to and that it doesn't have to have a perfect label for the argument. Uh, mm. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, Smith uses an X type of argument here. 
you know, it can just be that, you know, as Smith confronts the reader by yelling at them, what are you doing? You know, he's aiming to whatever it might be. You don't have to put a perfect label on, you know, this is this type of argument. You can show that you've understood that Smith has moved to be more confronting or whatever it might be or more sympathetically. So that way it's really showing that overall view and then you can you know, nail down into the evidence that really shows that off. Yeah. Another thing I tried to encourage my kids to do too is to highlight based on things that work together. So you might have three different highlighters and the things that work together for a particular argument or a particular strategy to highlight in one colour and then the next argument or strategy or approach in another colour. And so by the time you get to the end, you have three different colours all over your piece and that equates to your different paragraphs. And I think it's a good visual way because also too often there's an image or a headline and the really, really simplistic ways that you start teaching language analysis is talk about the headline here and then talk Mm. about paragraph one here and then dedicate a paragraph to the image here. And the whole thing is that everything is deliberately put together. The layout is very, very specific to elicit whatever response that the particular writer or newspaper wants. And so by trying to put it all together, I think that that's much better than, well, I haven't analysed a headline now. I need to put that in its own paragraph. Mm. Yeah, most definitely. And I think that's that's often a really big separator between the more sophisticated and the and the higher scoring responses and, and those that aren't quite getting there is that sometimes students, I think, feel that they need to work through it in that sort of A, then B, then C and working through it coherently that, well, this was the first paragraph, then I talked about the second, then I talked about the third, then there was a picture, then there was a fifth paragraph. Whereas the the more sophisticated ones are the ones who can do what I call grouping evidence. You know, I think a lot yeah. of teachers have used that where it's sort of, well, you know, we understood the approach and I took a quote from the first paragraph uh, and I put it together with a quote from the fourth paragraph. I didn't have to mention that they were in different parts. Uh, and then I could also bring in, you know, that there was an element of the visual that also, and that's that way of just showing the person who's reading it. It's like, I've got this, I, I used the word holistic before, and that's a really great way of being able to do it, that to be able to say that it's this case of being able to take evidence, little pieces of evidence from different parts of the article and bring them back to say, well, all of this was done in an attempt to, you know, whatever it might have been. And that can be that way of getting it towards way of understanding at a deeper level and and having a strategy to do that rather than thinking that you have to work chronologically through the piece. You know, first they did this, second they did that, third they did that. That's going to be very stilted and and nowhere near as sophisticated. Let's talk about structure, Ben, because this is what the kids really struggled with. When I said to them, I should have delivered it better, but I'm like, there's technically no real structure here. I can't give you a structure. I can tell you that there's ways that you can do it, like an easy way for me, especially in a sack, because it has to be comparative. For me, I would do like a block structure in which I would analyze the first piece, the one that appears first on its own, standalone, and then I would analyze the next piece that comes sequentially after that and continually compare back. And, you know, I said, but you can do a parallel analysis in which you can compare pieces together. And it really freaked them out. So yeah. is there structure? What do we say to the kids? How can we make this less confusing and confronting for them? Because we've literally pulled the rug out from under them by saying there's no structure. Yeah, I hear what you're saying there. And I understand why so many times students want to be able to grasp onto onto a structure because it gives yeah. that sense of, I've been told that there's a way to do it and I'm doing mm. it that way that I was told. So therefore I must be getting it right. 
And so yes. I can understand why there's that lack of confidence sometimes when we might say to students, well, you know, you don't have to do it that way. But I think that rather than being intimidated by that or worried by that, students should see it as, as an opportunity, that it's about finding something that works for them and they don't have to be you know, tied into this really regimented structure. I think in the overall sense for the SAC, with it being comparative, I think the way that you mentioned, that is the way that I've always seen it work in the most straightforward term. It's that way of saying, mm. okay, here I go, I'm going to talk about that first article and I'm going to touch on all the main points. Then I'm going to talk about the second piece of material. And then I'm going to finish off the piece by being able to compare all the different ways that they go together. The main mm. thing that I talk about there is that students get caught up in, well, how many paragraphs should a standalone analysis of the yeah. one be? And, and I remember saying t- uh, to lots of my students, I was like, well, you know, sometimes you might have four shorter paragraphs and sometimes you might have two really long ones. Like you're never going to be able to know. It's going to depend on what you get out of it with the reading. You know, you might just mm. pick up on three really big things or there might be four smaller things that and different approaches and arguments and different ways of doing it. And Neither of those is wrong. So rather than being Mm. worried about that with, oh my gosh, I don't have this structure that I have to write to and that I know will be right, actually see that as as being quite freeing in that you don't have to be tied down to a certain structure or anything like that. I I think the main thing for me is that students, I don't want to say waste a lot of time because that makes it sound really negative, but focus on the wrong thing far too much, which is Mm -hmm. focusing on explaining the article and things like yeah. that and you know if they've written this introduction if they've already introduced the the second piece in their in their introduction you know they've said taylor's piece no more taxes or whatever da, da, da. if they've already said that in the introduction they don't need to start their analysis by saying ben taylor has written a piece called no more taxes and it appeared in the age of the-. they don't have to go through all those things again and they don't have to spend time explaining the article to their teacher you know it, mm. you, you've, got to, you've got to get in and, and analyze it so in terms of that structure I think sometimes it's that misunderstanding and the same thing happens with tone and things like that that they that students will feel like okay if I in if I include in my intro the the title of the piece the publication the date the tone that's used and I touch on two or three arguments well then I get all these ticks but that's not what you're being marked on. You're not being marked no. on your ability to tell me what, where it appeared and everything like that. It can be a good way to introduce it and that's fine, but that's not where you're going to you know, succeed or fail with this task. And if you say things like, you know, Williamson uses an angry tone you know, throughout most of it, but then is quite positive by the end of it. If you don't go on to then analyze that tone or talk about why there would be fury and anger and things like that used, well, there's no point doing it. There's no mm. point having that sort of tick for, for mentioning those things. So in terms of the structure, the overall best, you know, most straightforward way I've seen it done is like you said, with the blocked, you know, and then getting to that comparative. But then, I mean, it also comes down to their paragraph structure. You know, I've had the privilege of working with a bunch of different schools and I know that, you know, each school I go to, no one teaches this the same way and that's fine. And I think Mm. that's probably something that we could share to the students in saying that just because at your school, you know, they've got TEA or, you know, A-E-E-F-I-S or whatever it is, you know, everyone's got an acronym and that's okay. There's no book that VCAR put out that says, right, every student must write with a what, how, why structure or an A-I-S-S-T-P-Q, whatever it might be, acronym. All of those things are just there to support the students, but that's not a a must. It's not something that they can get, uh, you know, woefully wrong if they're thinking, oh my gosh, you know, Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so has taught me, you know, these, these letters 
that's what I must follow. You know, there's different mm. ways of doing that and there's no one right way. So long as you're getting mm. to that analysis of why the certain argument has been used and that impact upon the reader, doesn't matter how you get there, you know, there's going to be different ways of, of, of doing it. There's two things I wanted to say. The first thing I love is you mentioned tone. And I think this is where students really freak out about having to identify the tone. I don't know the tone. It's really hard to identify. And I do believe that that comes from the fact that we don't really talk about shift in tone often until they're at the senior levels. And so they're so used to trying to find one tone. And most articles don't have one tone or most pieces don't have one tone. They actually shift throughout. And so when you realise that they shift, you're like, oh, okay, now I can pick three tones and it's much easier than trying to find one tone when it doesn't stay one tone the whole way through. But as you say, they, they look at this tick. I need to find my tone. I put it there. I've done it. It's identified. But a tone is like a tag of a persuasive technique. It doesn't do anything mm. unless you analyse it. And so by shifting a tone to being more sympathetic, how does that encourage the reader to respond? And that's what mm. they need to be doing. The other thing I wanted to mention too is I, like you, when I was on leave, I was doing some exam marking for schools before their all their practice exams. And I marked one school's issues analysis or analysing language analysis and they were very, very clearly told a structure, a three-paragraph structure, and they all talked about the first article in the first paragraph, the second article in the second paragraph, and there was like a comment or something in the third paragraph, and that's how they did it. But they didn't actually give the article that was longer a bigger paragraph. And so the first article wasn't analysed particularly well because they tried to get it over and done with fast, even though there was so much in it, which could have been three mm. paragraphs on its own. And the other two could have actually been in one paragraph together as a, as a slight comparison because that one was a comment of which it didn't need its mm. own paragraph. They were trying to fluff out this huge third paragraph because they believed that each element needed to be analysed in isolation. And most of them did that. Of a, cl- of a school of over 200 or a cohort of over 200, most of them did that. So clearly that was the way in which they'd been taught structurally. And that's why I'm so scared of telling my students to have a structure because you can see how tightly they hold on to it. And it just mm. takes away the critical thought. Like it would make way more sense to dedicate two to three paragraphs to a larger piece that has much more in it. Yeah. Wouldn't it? Absolutely. And that's the same with, with the exam as well. Often students will say, you know, because in the last five or six years, there's been a lot of, you know, there's sort of one full page. It's like the main thing, like the letter from the mayor or whatever it might be. And then mm. there's a picture that's half a page. And then there's a, you know, a one paragraph reply. And students are like, well, how much time? Well, it's like, well, it's sort of in there for you. If if half of the material is is this one thing, well, it should be roughly half of what you write in your finished product. And if a, yes. a tiny little quarter of it is down there, well, that shouldn't take up much more than a quarter. You know, you don't have to get out the ruler and work out, you know, exact percentages, but roughly just realising that's how it goes. And, and I think, yeah, it, it does come back to students being freed by that idea that it's like, Again, no one says you have to talk about them in isolation either. In fact, some of the more sophisticated and really insightful responses are the ones that can compare throughout. And, you know, Mm. like with your example, they might be really jumping into that first article and then they might reflect on how the uh, comment that's left later was, you know, similar in this way, but different in that way or whatever it might be. There's no one way of, of, of doing that. And I think sometimes modelling that for, for students can work really well when we're talking about the, the structure within paragraphs as well, is that 
you know, I, I know I used to teach a what, how, why. It was like, you know, what has the writer done? So, you know, Smith attacks Victoria Police when he says, you know, how, and then I put in a quote and then it always has to come back to why. Why would he do it? You know, he's trying to get the reader to feel the same anger as him and to get them to write into their local member or whatever it might be. But then I'd say to students that if you just always did that, okay, this is what he did, this is how he mm. did it, and this is why he did it, and you just repeated that over and over, it's going to become terribly boring to read. It's going to become... Yeah really static in its writing and, and like, you know, the opposite of fluent. Uh, mm. And so I, I would show them that sometimes you can begin your sentence with the impact. Yeah. You know, readers are left aghast and questioning, you know, their trust in politicians as Smith goes on to and start with the impact sometimes and then get to why and how they would have done it and all those types of things. So being able to see the different ways that it can work, I think, really helps out students with that. And knowing that they're not being marked on which formula or which recipe or which structure they follow. They're, they're being marked on their ability to fluently show their understanding of how argument has had an impact on the reader and the, the intentions of, of the writer. And whichever way they put that is not what's not what's been marked here. You know, there's ways that allow students to do it in a much more fluent and and insightful manner and there's ways where they're going to get really blocked and caught up in that formula so yeah I think what mm. like we were saying before it's about that freedom of being able to you know do it the way that that works best for them so let's talk about intros and conclusions here so you just said there's no technical structure should they have an introduction and conclusion should it be a very rigid thing what are your thoughts about that? Definitely with the introduction, because, you know, by the conventions of writing a piece that someone's going to read, you, you know, you can't just start analysing, you know, from the very first sentence. So definitely with the introduction, but just remembering that, remember the purpose of the introduction and that I, I see so many times, you know, students will write, you know, a good three quarters of, an, of a page, you know, of, of online mm. paper, these really long introductions. And, you can sort of go through it with them and, and think how much of this was necessary. Yes. You know, because obviously they need to refer to the piece, but, you know, they don't need to explain the, the contention in great depth and detail. You're there to show that you've understood the different arguments and, and approaches and things that the writer has done, not to give a replay of, oh, this is what he said. And, and I think it's a little bit like when we work with texts and it's like you're saying to the students, I know what was written in the articles. Like I've read the articles. You don't have to tell me. Because sometimes it really does come off that way. Students go, Smith says that horses shouldn't be, you know, euthanized, or whatever it might be. And they're, they're telling you all the stuff that was in the article, it, almost as yeah. if you haven't read it. Yes. And, and that's, that's taking up such valuable time and, and space that doesn't need to be taken up. You've got to be thinking, right, the teachers read this. They know what the article is all about. I'm being assessed on my ability to show how well I've understood all the different things that the writer has done throughout it. So that level of, okay, we both know what happened in this article, that's a given. That's there right from the start. It's from it's And it's from there that they should be jumping onto. So if students find themselves with the introduction getting really caught up in explaining all of the articles, just cut it, just get, get more directly to the point. But yeah, there's definitely a place for the introductions, but just making sure that it doesn't become the focus. And again, that thing where I feel good because I've got, you know, name, you know, the name of the article, yeah, title, tick, tick. publication date, yeah, and all that, that ticking the boxes sort of stuff. In terms of conclusions, oh, I don't want to be too controversial and say that you don't need one. I think with the sack, it is ingrained already in the task that it would make sense to finish with a sense of comparison, mm -hmm. that uh, any sort of, you know, conclusion that you would tack on would just be comparing them anyway. So, 
Yeah, I wouldn't be saying that, and again, there's no rule. Mm. So if I was to sit here and say, look, you don't have to do a conclusion, there might be some teachers that would think, well, no, actually, I really like when students do it that way. But my, my point would be that with the conclusion, you can definitely just have that sense of comparison. Mm -hmm. And that if you end with a couple of short paragraphs that are really comparing the different outcomes of, of argument and the different uses of argument, all those types of things, you can finish that in a way that where it, where it starts to sound like a conclusion anyway. Yeah. Um, and I think that that naturally lends itself to that. So I wouldn't be too worried about, okay, I have to get all these things done and then I must write a conclusion. Because if you were to say to me, well, what, what's going to be in the conclusion? The conclusion's basically going to be the comparison of them anyway. So may as well just keep going with that and uh, and, and making sure that, that that's the way that it goes. Yeah. yeah, so definitely the intro, the conclusion, I think with a comparative task, you're going to be doing it anyway with those two or three paragraphs at the end that are really comparing and wrapping all of it up. So just making a judgment really based on how much you've written and what comparison you've able to provide. Yeah, Absolutely. And, and, and that might be that some students will feel really good by being able to put in a short little paragraph at the end that just sort of sums up the comparisons that they've made. And it does naturally become a conclusion. That would be great. But I, I would be really upset if a, if a student felt that they had to stop what they were doing with their analysis because they felt like that a requirement of the task was to write this half-page conclusion, yes. just rehashing everything that they already said in the introduction. And that came at the cost of further analysis and further comparison. Yeah. So, yeah, most definitely there's space for it to be there. But, again, don't think that there's a box that must be ticked that you have to have some really long, elaborate conclusion. A lot of the time you'll naturally get there anyway by the way that you've been comparing. I'm going to ask you because I reckon that kids are thinking this, bare minimum information in an introduction. What is the bare minimum that should be included in an introduction? Uh, I, I'd be going with, you know, the classics of the of the title and, and, and you can do the date and the publication. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But just knowing that if, if the students don't do that, well, it's not going to matter. It, it can be as simple as just saying, you know, John Smith's article, you know, we must raise taxes now, appeared, appeared in the Herald Sun, full stop. Smith argues and, and, and you're off. I yeah. don't think you need to get too too caught up in that. That, that. That's not the point of it. And and when it comes to putting forward the contention, I think that, you know, students can be clever there in, in not needing to, you're not being tested in terms of your comprehension of, again, explaining everything that the article says mm. and that you can show your understanding of the contention by instead just touching on the two or three main arguments or approaches that you saw in that piece. Mm -hmm. That's quite okay that that's a way of doing the contention, that it doesn't have to be, okay, I've, I've got all the details that are wrong or right. Now I'm going to mention the contention. Now I'm going to list the arguments. Now I'm going to list the tone. That, that those things can be done organically in terms of it saying, you know, by pointing out the different things that the writer has done, just touching on them there as those big, bigger arguments and just touching on that because through that you're going to be showing your understanding of overall what, what the writer was saying. You don't need to explain the article in four or five lines and then say these are all the things that he said and now here are some of the arguments that he used. Yeah. You know, that can all be done together and, and that that anytime you're sitting there explaining what the uh, what the writer has done rather than sort of showing that you understood how the writer was going about doing it you, you're probably taking up time that could be used on analysis agreed I actually think when I speak to my students about analysis that you can infer the contention as well so you know by encouraging someone to see something as negative the flip side of that is then to agree that they should be doing this. So you can infer something in terms mm. of how the reader or the audience is positioned and you can also explicitly state it as well. And I think that 
varying between the two rather than constantly explicitly stating the contention or always inferring. I think that there's it's important to find balance in doing that. Mm. And I also think too that students need to understand that if their analysis is like an explanation or a definition of what a technique does in a textbook, so, you know, such and such mm-hmm. is a rhetorical question which encourages the audience to further question their own perspective. I mean, I could lift that and put that into any analysis. That's so yes. vague. Yep. And so to me, if you're not referencing either the way that the particular target audience is encouraged to respond in some way or really link it back to the specific contention of that particular piece, there's no analysis. It's just another explanation. Mm, yeah, most definitely. And and so that's that that way that they that students need to be seeing the piece that it's not about scanning it for for techniques mm. you know and and i think that probably because of the exam you know the exam the section c on the exam is different every year but probably because you know having marked so many of them over the last 6 or 7 years and 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 used them as practice material when you do take a look back through all those all those years of the exams you do see those similarities that exist in there the way that that a tone shifts or that they'll include some form of statistics or a lot of the time it'll be about we as the community and things like that but I think sometimes students can take that as yep you know I've practiced doing all this and every time they use the word we I'm going to say yep Baker has used the word we this is an example of inclusive language because he wants the, the community to feel like they're included and you think yep but you could say that about any time the word we is used in any piece yeah. you need to be specific and so that you know you can be auditing yourself on that uh, when you're using those types of things. And, and sometimes I've had students say like, oh, right then, okay, so I don't to talk about rhetorical questions or inclusive language. I was like, well, no, you can still do it so long as your analysis is specific to this piece in that, yes. you know, he looks to gain the support by showing that as a representative of the town, you know, he has lived through the hard times that they have. So there's a collective yes. sense of them all being a part of the small country town. So they're yes. more willing to support him on this new venture. Whatever it might be, it's that mm-hmm. idea of, Yes. Why was he looking to be inclusive or why did he ask a rhetorical question? We don't want that textbook answer, like you said. Rather, it's that idea yes. about specifically what he wants, what, what they want out of it for that audience in this context. And that, that needs to be that way that they go about it. So this is where I think the kids really struggle because, and again, it's the way you start teaching it. It's all about the tag and the technique and what it's the technique. And then you move into VCE and it's like, well, the tag and the technique's not that important anymore. Mm-hmm. You don't really have to have that explicitly stated. But then as part of the assessment, it's like the meta language has to be in there as well. And a technique or a tag fits that too. Yeah. So how do we kind of make that clearer and get some clarity for the students around use meta language, don't necessarily tag, but include persuasive techniques. And, you know, it's so it's so hard for them to get a clear grasp on the task when there's so many exceptions or seemingly so many exceptions yeah yeah absolutely i think what we mentioned there with it's still okay to talk about different devices that have been used i think the thing that that can help students is to realize that a little bit like with the the different arguments that might be in a piece there's not a list of okay these were the techniques did you find them that they can talk Mm. about language without always having to have a, a specific label to place upon it that you know, it can be 
that the meta language doesn't always have to be right. There's a list of, you know, 200 terms and these, these are all the meta language terms and you've got to use some of them. You know, that, that meta language, you know, really pointing out to students that, that it's just language about language. And so it doesn't have to be specific mm. words. It just has to be that way of by opening, you know, his paragraph in such an abrasive manner. Well, that, that's fine because you are using language to talk about the language that, it, that he's used and that's okay. Even though abrasive is mm. not a perfect tag or technique that we can put on it, you're still doing that. So really, I think when students see meta language as, as part of the assessment, it's an important part of it, but they don't need to be thinking that it's, all right, there are certain terms that equal meta language and certain terms that aren't, and I've got to have a list of them. A little bit like tone, you know, I, I think so many times students are like, oh, can you give me one of those tone charts? And, you know, they're looking through all the yeah. huge words that they'll never use where it's like, it's okay for you to talk about tone. Sometimes I'd challenge students to go, right, I want you to analyze the tone without using the word tone itself. Because a lot of the times, you know, students yes. actually say things like, you know, Williams uses a tone and, and things like that. And it becomes really sort <laughs> yeah. of, you know, quite primary and, and quite basic in that way, as opposed to understanding that, you know, they can say things like with, with his abrasive beginning, Williams, you know, that is talking about tone. To, to be abrasive yes. and in the way that you speak to someone, that you're, you're highlighting the tone there. Just because, yeah, just because you didn't say tone that doesn't mean that that's there. So I think, yeah, with the meta language, uh, getting away from the specificity of it, that, that students think that there's a golden list of, of the right words or anything like that. If they are using language to show their understanding of, of language, that's that's what we mean. That's that, that, that's the idea of being meta, you know, of meta language. It's language about language. Mm. So it doesn't have to be mm. the, the right amount of terms, just like with, you know, there being techniques or anything like that. You know, we don't have to have the specific right thing that rather we just need to focus on what it meant, what how you read it and how you understood it. This part of it to me is the way that the no structure is as well. It's actually really freeing because I know that there's so many students that read pieces and they go, I feel like this is persuasive, but I don't know where the technique is, so I can't talk about it. Yeah. And so this is how it's so beautiful. You don't need to know what it is. You don't need yeah. to know what the specific technique is. If you feel that that's persuasive and you can talk about what that makes the specific audience think, feel or do or respond, then talk about it. And mm. so I think that that lack of specific structure, that lack of having to signpost and tag a technique is actually incredibly liberating as long as you get to that place where you feel as though you're confident enough to not have all of those restrictions and those things to hang on to because it means that you can actually just look at it for what it is and analyse what's there rather than having to fit ABC, as you say, into yeah. your piece. Yeah, and and that, that's that, that way of having it's, it's a personal reading and that the the way that you as a student are going to read this will be different to the person next to you. And and that's okay. In fact, that's a good thing that that's what you're looking for. You're not looking to uncover the answers. There is no one answer. There is no one way of doing this task. Yeah. But if you can point to something that was done and point to the reasons as to why that writer would be getting some sort of response from that audience, that's fine. And, and, Actually, you know, we've used the word, you know, freeing and things like that. Sometimes that can be what the students need to hear in order to get them past that panic of, like you said, oh, but I don't know what technique that is or I don't know what to call it. You don't have to have a perfect name for everything. You know, if you can point out, if you can pull a quote out and you can analyse the fact that, you know, the audience would respond in this way as the writer said that to them, then you're doing the task. You don't have to worry about having the perfect 
word or, or label to place upon it. It can just be you, you know, pointing out those things and showing that understanding. I just listened to Teachers Talk Texts, the podcast has been released around argument analysis with Claire McKay yep. and Emma Ford. And yep. there's three things I want to mention that they talk about. The first one is about turning nouns into verbs, just like what we said, rather than saying it's an aggressive tone, which is naming the tone, by saying something like Taylor aggressively blah, blah, yeah. blah, blah. So by turning that angry tone into a verb, it addresses the tone but it also increases fluency and I think that it's just a much more sophisticated way of getting those kind of language devices in. Like, again, rather than saying such and such usually a rhetorical question, you could say something like by questioning the audience. So turning into a verb where you can, I think, helps with fluency. The other thing that they talked about was the 2017 exam and it was a principal's message to the parents about being more environmental. Yeah, yeah, environmental. plastic and stuff. Yep. Yeah, wanting to remove plastic from the school lunches and things like that. And they yep. talk about, and I think ultimately you've already answered this question, but I want to kind of go back over it. They talked about how the very beginning of her message really is about gaining trust mm. and justifying her viewpoint and trying to engage with the parent body Mm. to then be able to request action from them. So the first paragraph really isn't an argument per se. It's literally a tactic or an approach, like what you said. And I was listening to that and Emma at one point says, so I really encourage the students to start with an argument. And I thought, you know what? Students are really going to get hung up on this because they've just said that the first paragraph actually isn't a technical argument. Mm. It doesn't start the argument until the second paragraph but then they've had this really rich discussion about this tactic around justifying herself and gaining trust. And so I think the fact that you've opened that term argument to argument or approach makes it very clear that you wouldn't ignore something like that. No, you wouldn't ignore uh, that approach of trying to gain and garner trust from your audience. Most definitely. And and I, um, I'm, I'm really glad that, that students are getting that advice about verbs because it's something that I, I think... It, particularly when it comes to having marked the exams for, for quite a few years now, because, you know, if, you, if you're marking section A, you know, there's, there's, there's 10 texts that you're, that you're in charge of marking and there's two different questions. So there's all these different things that you see, whereas when you jump in and you start marking the yes. section C, it's just the same over and over. So you see so many of them. But the one thing that I started to see with that real separation not to say that there's a criteria that once you use verbs, yeah, bang, you're going to get a seven or an eight or above. <laughs> but one thing that you yes. do start to see that is a hallmark of those higher end pieces is that use of verbs. You know, Baker challenges the reader. Baker, you know, leads the reader to question, to contemplate. All those things about, okay, well, if we're going to talk about, we're going to use doing words, you know, verbs, then we, then we are showing that we understand what the writer is doing to the audience. So there's that really great way of students making that a habit and, and using verbs a lot of the time. And, and with 2017, I, I can remember marking that. And I remember, again, and one of the hallmarks was there were plenty of students that noticed that. I think, you know, um, the principal says something like, oh, I can hear what you're saying. Oh, not another one of her green ideas again. You know, all these sorts yes. of things. And she's basically been yes. a bit self-deprecating in saying like, Oh, God, here we go again, Denise. But she also subtly reminds them, she's like, yeah, but look at all these great things that we've done and look how proud we should be of our school. And so mm. the students that didn't have as much success were, were the ones that used all those quotes and it was like, yeah, great, you've, you've found it. You've picked up on these great things that she's done. 
But then at the end of it, their analysis, you know, was tantamount to Walker does this so to be relatable to her audience. And then they moved on. You think, mm. oh, you're not wrong, but that's not yeah. a deep analysis of it. You know, there's so much more. And so, again, with that holistic you know, reading of it, when the student was able to say by being self-deprecating and understanding that she's in energetic and enthusiastic, she also reminds, you know, another verb, she reminds the parents of the school that many of the initiatives that she's introduced have been very successful. And so, you know, yes. and that way when students were putting that evidence together and saying, on one hand, she's saying that, yeah, I know that sometimes I'm a bit annoying, but at the same time, she's also reminding the parents that, yeah, and it was probably annoying the last time I brought this up, but hey, it all worked out pretty well for everyone. And overall, the impact of that, you know, they they reflect on the positive history of the school, they reflect on the pride of the school, and they are led to feel that she'll be worth following again because they've got that trust. So being able to put all of those things together, I think, can be that thing as well where students can look to take that next step rather than just going, oh, great, she's being relatable. Cool, I can say relatable. It's like, well, that is like the very base of where you should start from with something like that. And then it should be moving to what else does it do? And and if, you know, if students are able to talk about how something that she does at the start helps her achieve something by the end, that's that really insightful, yes. you know, sort of holistic understanding that we've talked about. Yeah, but it's like why a lot of people start with a personal anecdote. You know, the whole point mm. is to create an image to show that they are personally affected, to gain credibility because they've been there with you and to suck people in. And all of those things are very, very tactical so that they can bring in the argument and I guess have a call to action later and you are much more invested. And so that investment is actually very important in order to get the response later, isn't it? So it's, mm. it's so it's so important to talk about. Yeah, m- most definitely. And and I think that's that that step that we talked about before, that rather than going, oh, yeah, every year VCAR have someone that starts with an anecdote or start by saying we yeah. or talks about how they've been in the community, rather than going, oh, yeah, all you have to do is just find that and say that they're being relatable or they're using an anecdote to gain trust. It's not that equal sign. It's it's rather about, all right, specifically, why did this person use an anecdote with this audience, you know, and, and what did that help them do? Well, as we've just said, to say that they're, you're relatable or to gain credibility is that textbook definition that we've just talked yes. about. I could yeah. lift that from every single piece and put it into another one and it would give me no insight as to what the specific contention was. Yeah, exactly. And 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 but and then I think what's really good for for students that are listening to this to take a look at that 2017 piece and and to see what we're talking about with this in and they'll be able to see the difference between just saying relatable and then also you know talking about how it's intertwined with the other language about success and pride and all those things and so therefore specifically what that principle is saying to these parents is remember all the good stuff I've done for your kids. And that is specific to a principal talking to parents. Therefore, it's of a higher quality than just saying it's relatable language. Yeah. Yes. I would also encourage everybody to listen to the Teacher Talks text and I will put that information in the show notes too. It's a fantastic episode. So I put on Instagram on my stories a question box saying that I was going to come on and have a chat with you. And I had a few questions from teachers. So I'd love to put them to you if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. So the first one is, can a piece that does not explicitly signpost arguments but analyzes purpose, audience, and language still get a really top mark? (laughs) It's a little bit like before when we were saying, like, you know, verbs are the way to get an aid or anything like that. It's possible, I would say, in terms of, you know, every piece is going to be marked and and be weighted out in in all of the different things that it does. So, I mean, if it's extraordinarily deep in its analysis and it's – 
uh, understanding of argument and, and the impact and it's really thorough in the way that it goes about it? Well, yeah, I guess it, technically the answer would be yes, that yeah, yeah, that it could receive that mark. And again, I guess it's a bit like how we say to the students that there is a structure in the way that you write, but that's up to you. And that, so it doesn't technically always have to be, okay, my first paragraph of analysis has this really strong flagging of, you know, the signposting of, right, argument one, argument two, argument three. So my, my answer to that would be that that's often a really good way for students to do it is to be able to work and say, right, I noticed that this was one of the main things that the, that the writer did. And then within it, I've got all these different examples that showed all the different dynamics of that sort of argument and the different reasons and the different ways and the different evidence. So that's obviously going to be a really thorough way of going about it. But it's not the only way of going about it. And, and if a student is a little more, you know, sort of implicit in just being able to show all the different arguments, but doing it in a way where they're just being more thorough in, in other ways, I guess technically, yes, they could, because there's no rule mm-hmm. saying that there must be signposting of arguments. But, you know, I'd, I'd still be suggesting that probably the most straightforward way of, of students being able to do it is to, to signpost those arguments. But I'd also be saying that a lot of what we've sort of, a lot of sort of the theme of our discussion has been about there not being this one regimented way of doing it. So I definitely wouldn't be saying to students yeah. that you must always be, do these big, heavy signposts and have, you know, and it must be four paragraphs and they all must be this long. You know, there's so many different ways of doing it. However, you know, you, you do need to remember a little bit like we talked about at the start that it is argument and analysing argument. So if you haven't mm. identified some of those arguments as a part of your analysis, well, you're probably limiting how well you've understood the use of all of those arguments. But as we said before, that idea of maybe it doesn't always have to be a signpost of an argument to begin each paragraph. It could be approach that they took or yeah. the purpose behind something and then another another paragraph could be a specific signposting of an argument. So if you have it in there, it doesn't have to be the only way, I suppose, yeah. that you yeah. introduce every paragraph. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm trying to think why, why I mean this in a, in a positive way, I'm trying to think, you know, to, to help out the, the teacher that's put that question in. I guess that it's probably coming about from is, is it a must that we have these explicit identifications of, of big arguments? And so I guess the answer, to, if that's sort of behind why the teacher asked that question, my answer to that would be, no, there doesn't have to be the perfect identification of certain arguments that as I'm marking those pieces at the end of the year, I'm not thinking like, oh, good, they noticed the so-and-so, you know, the appeal to reason. So yeah, tick, now it can access these certain marks. Yeah. It's, there's not going to be that list or anything like that, but there is going to be that student who, who shows that understanding of those approaches and those arguments. So maybe I guess something else that, that can help answer that question is, that way of saying that we can be, in my opinion, from what I've seen in what, especially with the pieces that do really well, we can be a little loose in our definition of what an argument is. You know, it can be an approach or a thing that's done. You know, it doesn't always have to be technically, you know, appeal to reason, appeal to this, this, that or the other or or attack or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Okay. The next question is, can a student still get a good mark if they misinterpret the visual but back it up with some evidence? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yes, they can because there's um, ways that a visual can be interpreted and there's ways that as an assessor, you know, the first time that I look at a picture of like the drone or whatever from last year, you know, my first thought was, okay, yeah, it's, it's reminding the reader of the need for safety or it's showing, you know, carelessness or whatever. But that doesn't mean that because that's the way I saw it, that I'm looking for that answer and, and therefore nothing else can be right. 
my when it says misinterpreted, I, I would definitely be saying I know that we are trained, and anyone who's listening who's done exam marking, I'm sure, would say the same thing that we are trained to say, right, well, you might have seen it a certain way, but that doesn't mean that that's the way. And and you shouldn't be marking students, yeah. you know, to your criteria of what you thought. So that idea of if they can have a credible analysis of why a certain element of that visual has been included or what that visual is helping that writer do, absolutely that works as long as it's a credible thing. So when that, that question uses the word misinterpreted, I guess the, the one way of giving a solid answer to that is that there's many different ways of interpreting. If it can be backed up by evidence, you know, that old English teacher cliche of if it can be backed up by evidence, then yeah. it's fine. But there would be a line there where sometimes something that a student might say, you'd say, well, no, that is wrong. That is incorrect. That's not what that picture is yeah. doing. So, yeah, you, if they're flat out saying something about the picture that you can look at and say, well, no, that's categorically not true or not in the image or not that, well, then, yeah. yeah, of course, that line can't be met. But if they can reason, if they can reasonably say that this is how they saw it and this is the impact it would have on a reader, then it's not for us to say, well, oh, no, I don't agree with that interpretation. If, if it's there and it's their interpretation and it leads to an analysis that leads to, you know, how the viewer of that picture would think, act or feel, then, then that would be fine. Okay. What is more important in writing to be concise and clear or to have extremely sophisticated writing, but then it dips in and out of clarity? First one, by a mile, by, by, by a mile. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and and sometimes it can be really, you know, when you're reading a piece, particularly when you don't know who the student is and you think, I know why you're doing this. You, you think that yeah. by posturing with this language, but I think the word to be, to be used there that, that gets used a lot with the training is that idea of control. And so from the way that yes. question's put, I'd be saying that that second student that uses this very precise and sophisticated language but it dips in and out of meaning they don't have control of it. So therefore it's not worth it. And and so most definitely the, the first one, but that's always a hard line that you, you know, you want students to be improving their vocabulary and, and their ability to use different sentence structures and so on and, and be able to write with a sense of fluency. So you want them experimenting in the classroom and getting it wrong and then yep. getting it right and having your feedback to say, yep, no, you've nailed it. Now that's the way that you use that term or that word or whatever and improving that there. But yeah, definitely it can be be detrimental when, particularly with argument analysis, sometimes, you know, students can be really verbose and and, and it, it does work against them in terms of that fluency that it's like, well, if you've taken six sentences to make one pretty bland point that could have been made in, a, in two sentences, well, then that's not effective writing. Mm. That's coming at the quality of the writing. It's, it's verbose. It's over the top. And it's not clear and concise. So, yeah, definitely, I think, you know, it's it's not like, oh, well, you know, it dipped in and out of meaning. But when they did use some sophisticated words, it was really good. So, therefore, it covers over all the cracks. No, because I think, you know, you've got to look at it in yes. that way where it's like there are students that are going to be scoring, you know, tens that are able to use that sort of language but have control over it and use it all the way through and that's where they're going to be. So if you're a student that's trying to use all this language that you don't know the meaning of, it's going to come at the detriment of, of your um, of your ability to, to express yourself. And therefore, it's going to be marked that bit lower. It's better to be concise and clear with what you're saying and get that meaning across. Because whilst beautiful decorative language is great and everything like that, much better to have a full piece with 100% control over what you're saying and getting to that meaning and that analysis and think, act, feel and all those elements of the task and really nailing all those things with clear language 
than it is to not be meeting the task sometimes by trying to do something that you're not in control of. It's really interesting because I've been tutoring for so long. I would see so often that students would come to me and say, this is how my teacher wants me to do it. And I don't really believe that that's necessarily what the teacher was trying to get the students to take away. I think that they probably put a sample up using language that they feel comfortable with and using Mm. their voice. And the students see that it's so far removed Mm. from their own voice that they see their own vocabulary as being lesser than. And I think if I can say anything to students, it's, as you said, experiment, find vocab that you really like using, definitely create word banks and try and improve your sophistication. But at the end of the day, it still needs to be your voice. No one is asking to emulate somebody else. And I don't believe any teacher is saying you must write sentences this way Mm. in this structure because that's how I write. Because in year 12, that's what anybody is looking for. People are looking for you to be able to interpret something your way and provide evidence for that in your own voice. Mm. Yeah, most definitely. And I think sometimes as well, it, it's that, uh, that misunderstanding of what success with the task is. And, and one thing that I see a lot of is students that use terms like they'll say, you know, um, Baker has used you know, his lexical choice or something like that. It's like yes. you've got to get that feeling as like, well, I, I think maybe that student, and I'm not being demeaning to that student by any stretch, but you do get that feeling that then if the rest of the vocab, you know, this instead of saying word choice or use language like this, if the rest of the piece isn't, you know, up to that sort of standard of vocabulary, well, there wasn't much point using it in the first place. It just yeah. was a really jarring, yeah. odd way of trying to make something much more fancier than, than what it needed to be. Yes. So, yeah, I think sometimes there is that misunderstanding that that is success, that if I can use these words and only a few people know, well, that will show that I am smarter or this or that as opposed to, you know, just getting the job done with efficient and clear use of language. And I think that's, you know, I think that comes across in a lot of the texts that they read as well, particularly, particularly a lot of the Australian authors. You know, the, the writing isn't, you know, decorative and full of all these, you know, unbelievable words. It's just really clear and direct and concise in, the, in what it says and, and that there's that, you know, real beauty in its simplicity. So I think, you know, the students should be aiming for exactly what you said when it comes to what they are comfortable with, mm. but we as teachers should be, showing them things, not in a way where I want to be taking something and students go, oh, there's no way I could ever write like that. Yeah, I think my job as a teacher a lot of the time is to say, actually, some of the words that I've used here or some of the structures that I've used, it's really just a trick. You know, it's, yeah. it's just actually, it just allows me to do this. And once you get comfortable with it, that's something that you can fall back on and you'll have these certain phrases and certain sentence starters that you'll get really comfortable with. And if they're clear and they're concise, well, get comfortable using them and, and fall back on them. And because I think that's often where you see real improvement with students is where they begin to experiment in the classroom with sentence starters or phrases or structures that they weren't 100% comfortable with, but they practice enough of it that it becomes routine to them. So they can then fill in, you know, around those structures with with really good, you know, analytical work. That can be how they can really have that improvement, not by trying to memorise these words with 14 syllables and all that, that, you know, that no one's ever going to know what they are. Yes. This teacher has said, I reckon the hardest part of argument analysis is analysing the impact of the language in the audience. Kids can usually identify an argument, find a technique and include a quote, but I'm always interested in how a teacher explains that analytical step. Yeah, absolutely. I think I would make jokes with my class about think, act, feel, think, act, feel, think, act, feel. You know, I'd make jokes about tattooing it on the back of my head so they'd see it every time, you know, I wrote on the board and just that idea that 
at its base, it always must come back to that, that yeah. think how the think act feel, you know, how is the reader or the audience led to think based on that language or act or feel? Do you have that impact there? And, and, and that doesn't mean that that is the way to teach it. You know, different schools will have, you know, that why did the writer use it? Have you included why or impact, 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 whatever it might be. But I would always be really clear with students of saying that is what you're marked on. Mm. That is, you know, not not that there is a numerical sort of splitting up of the grade, but if there was, you know, you'd be saying that you know, 85% of what this task is is happening with the level to which you can point out the impact of that language, that think, act, feel. That is what the task is. Your ability to find the arguments, that'll help you get there. Your ability to weave in quotes and use evidence that shows that you understand those things, that'll help you get there. But the name of the game is that think, act, feel at the end of it. So I guess it's just being about as clear as possible with that, but then showing to, to them that it's this idea of, okay, at the base level, it's about, right, I used to quote, think, act, feel. I used another quote, think, act, feel. And that, that's going to be at the base and then we can get more sophisticated from there. But that must be the launching point. And so other ways that, that some teachers do that, I know, is like with highlighters and things like that. And it's a bit like, all right, highlight for me everywhere on this page where you have outlined how the reader was led to think or act or feel. And sometimes that can be a real eye opener for students. Mm. And it can also be, okay, I've highlighted all the quotes you've used, but I can't find anywhere where there's a link between the quote you've used and then why that quote was used, you know, and that and yeah. that think, that think, act, feel. And so, yeah, I think just really stressing the point to them about how important it is, the fact that it is what the task is, that everything else that's important about the task is all leading to that, to that impact of the language and and showing them the different ways. And, and I guess while they're there as well, one other thing that I used to really pick up on with students was that they'd spend a lot of time getting to that point. They might use six or seven sentences and use two or three different forms of evidence and all this explanation. And then they get to the impact statement and they say something like, this leads the reader to feel guilty. And then they go off in another direction and think, no, you've done all that work. You've yes. done all that work to get to this point. Now's where you cash in because this is what the task is. You've identified the argument. You've shown me all of this evidence. And now here's where you earn the marks. Don't just say, oh, guilty, onto the next one. It's, you know, this sense of guilt and what that leads to and multiple forms of think, act, feel so that they're really getting in there and and you and relishing that opportunity to show all the different ways that language would lead the, the reader to, to think, act, feel, do all those different things, because that's the, the depth of that is going to determine how far they go with the task. I love that you've said that, because unless you're bringing it back to that specific contention, and I would also like to talk about the target audience too, because I think so many people talk about the reader or the audience, because they look at the style, it's written, therefore they're the reader, or it's a speech, therefore they're an audience. But the specificity of the target audience is really, really important as well because a very few times is it just the general public, mm. you know. It's often really specific groups of people as well and I think that that's something to consider too. And and within that, the, the specific groups of people within it are going to have different attitudes as well, you know, and, and there will be like, you know, if we use um, that Denise Walker in 2017 example, you know, there are going to be parents that, support her and that some of the language will mm. impact them in a way because, you know, they are strengthened in their resolve that she's a great principal because she reminds them of all the great things that she's done. But then she might use some other language that might be more aimed at people who resist some of her ideas. And, and that so there will be different attitudes within that audience as well. And that that's another hallmark of, of, the, of the pieces that are able to go deeper. They're able to 
cut the audience up and not just into demographics of, oh, you know, younger people will feel this way and older people or men or women or whatever it might be, but maybe the attitude of the audience because the audience isn't just this blank slate of people that will be impacted by the words just because that's how he said, you know, different people within an audience are going to feel different ways. So, you know, there can be that that, that different impact of the language on those different subsects of the audience as well. And you know what, even if you consider like in Victoria, obviously we have seen press conference after press conference with Dan Andrews coming out and, you know, the medical officers coming out and they have to address business owners, they have to address yeah. parents, they have to address, you know, the elderly, the people that want to travel, they have to they have to address every single person and you can see that they do shift their language based on the people that they're talking to, even though the general public is technically being addressed. Yeah. There are so yeah. many subcategories in there that need to hear and you can, like I know for myself, I'll, I'll watch to a point and I think, oh, he's already addressed everything that I want, so I'll turn yep. it off. Yeah, 100%. You know? And yeah. so clearly, <laughs> clearly, you need to consider that. And I would hope that Victorian students, after having the year that was 2020, have probably watched the news far more than any other year, <laughs> yeah. just to yeah. know if they can go outside with a mask. So, yeah, there is so much nuance in terms of an audience. And I think it's a waste to just talk about the general public or the reader. Yeah. And that's one of my things that I'll say to students a lot of the time that it's like, if you're saying that the audience is just the general public, well, then, you know, there's probably a whole lot that you're missing out on. And particularly when it comes to the exam, you've always got to take that step back and think, right, who are the audiences here? You know, okay, it's a country town or it's parents or, you know, and, and rather than just being, again, a little bit like with the tone, rather than just being able to go tick, I identified that the audience was parents. Okay, that's, that's great. But what is it about parents? What are the characteristics of parents? They want what's best for their children. They worry. They're, you know, they're, you know, they have these things about them that make them specific. And therefore, the language is going to be geared for that person with that outlook who's worried about their kid or their school or their education or whatever it might be. And there's such an opportunity there for students to be able to dig in and, and find some really great things to be able to analyze. About, and we get back to that specificity and, and nuance, you know, the two really important words to use that, you know, it's going to have that that specific impact on that specific audience. And that can be a really great way of, um, of, of analyzing it. And I think that's what does take it that bit further when we talk about that step to analysis. And I would often find students where I would just say, you need to go further with this. And I actually had a really top student come up to me once and say, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> and that was really good me up on it because I kept saying take it further take it further you've stopped too you've stopped too short and he would say but I've talked about what they're supposed to think I've talked about what they're supposed to feel or to do I'm like yeah but you're lacking that connection now back to the specific elements of this contention of this issue of this environment in which this particular piece exists and it's too vague and you've stopped too short which is exactly what you were saying before I had I used to have a, a conversation with a close friend I used to work with and, and her and I would say that we felt that sometimes because kids had written a language analysis, sometimes even in year nine, and then they'd been taught mm. the structure in year 10 and then in year 11, by year 12, I think sometimes the capable students were sort of plateauing and they're like, yeah, I know what to do. Yeah, tone, shifts, all that. Yeah, yeah, argument, you know, TEA or what, how, why or whatever. Yeah, I know how to do it. And they don't have that understanding of what exists beyond it. And I know um, a bit of a plug for my for the YouTube videos that I do here, but I actually did one last year where it was I did three different videos, and it was like, right, if you find language and argument analysis, 
really difficult, watch this video. It's you know, number one. If you're in the middle and you just want some good tips, number two. But then the third video was, if you're capable and you get all the basics and you can write these things, but you're wondering how you can go further. And, I, and that was that, that third video there on the English Lab YouTube channel because, and I got a lot of comments from students about that because for some of them it was like, oh, I didn't even realize that there were these other things I can do. You know, multiple audiences, multiple impacts of language, you know, all of these little, you know, you call them tricks or whatever, but these things where it's like, well, once you've done the task, once you've used evidence of an argument and talked about the impact it has on a reader, well, how do you do that better? There are those things out there and a lot of it comes down to specific audience and all those types of things, those tiny little things that can show that extra depth. Yes. And I still remember too going through year 10 and 11 and I was kind of a sort of B plus A student during that time and I just did what the teacher said. And I remember getting a language analysis back and be like, cool, I got a B plus or an A or something. But I actually didn't understand the task at all. I really didn't know what I was doing. I just repeated and regurgitated what had been done and I think that we did a lot of mirroring where the teacher would have the article up and we just write the annotations down that she did and then I just put them into sentences so I didn't actually know what I was doing and I didn't understand the task until I got to year 12 and I think that without really understanding the actual task you cannot pick up on all of those things because if you're just trying to tick these things off your list because that's what you're told you have to do then you're missing the whole point of what you're actually supposed to be doing, which is analysing how writers formulate or how people formulate language in order to get a result that they want. Yes, yeah, exactly, exactly. Second last question. This teacher says, how do you tell the difference between tone versus style? Mm. First impressions of of that, the first thing I would think would that be style would probably be something that would be you know, existing throughout the whole piece, that there's a certain style that it sort of sticks to throughout, whereas tone, as we mentioned, can change and shift and move and things like that. And I guess I'd also probably be saying that I'd be I'd be wondering, you know, why, why that might be important because, again, it's a little bit like, well, you know, are we looking to label it or anything like that? If there's a certain style that has been used in, in the writing or the speaking or whatever that might be, as long as we're analyzing the impact of that style, you know, it's the same as if we're analyzing the impact of, uh, of, of the tone. But I guess for me, it would be that the style would be something that's pretty consistent throughout, whereas the tone is something that we can talk about the many different ways that it, that it changes, um, you know, throughout the piece. And, and having that idea that rather than they used X tone and that was it, you know, the students, you know, be able to get that sort of idea that a piece of writing is fluid and that it's going to move and that from paragraph to paragraph, it's going to have these changes within it that are, that all sort of accumulate to that contention. To me, I often talk about style in terms of things like it's a more personalised approach or style versus yeah, yeah. informed or a more sort of, I don't know, what am I trying to say where, where they're kind of, they sound as though they're very well researched or, you know what I mean? Yes, I think yeah. there's different styles you can take in terms of the way you want to approach a particular topic. But then from there, the tone is actually quite different because, you know, when I was speak, when I was listening to the Teachers Talk Texts podcast, they were talking about emotional is not a tone. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. logical is not a tone. Those things are actual approaches and styles and choices that are made. That's They're not technically, t- it's not a logical tone necessarily. That's more of a tactic taken to appeal 
or to utilize logic and to and to sort of engage with the audience logically. So I think that they're the things to consider. Maybe that that's a style isn't. Yeah, I think I think you've nailed it. Yeah, that that and that I think as you said that it probably crystallized exactly what the question was asking. And and uh, for me, in that that style seems to be the overarching approach overall. Mm-hmm. And and as you were saying that, I was sort of thinking about you know with COVID being everywhere. The different people who write about it, you know, if it's a viro- virologist or an epidemiologist or whatever, a lot of the times they will have that very blunt way of writing because yeah. they're not interested in emotion or anything like that. They're saying these are the facts and figures, this is the research, this is the modelling. So that would be that style of being quite, uh, you know, uh, educated and, and blunt and, and all those, and not blunt, but that, you know, sort of very precise way of speaking. Yes. Um, and then there could be there could be tonal shifts within that. So I guess that would be that that way. And and I think you really nailed it there where you talked about emotion and logic that well, they're not they're not tones, they're mm-hmm. overall sort of ways that people, you know, approaches that people take, the style, you know, that they'll try to be um, you know, like relatable. Like we said, sometimes the way people speak is to try and get people to feel like they're, you know, they're they're friends and that they're close. And that would be a style that's not a tone yes uh, so i guess for me from from what you've said that that style is overarching and the tone moves within it i guess i like that last question what are the exact requirements of this task for students who need clear structure and guidelines to hold on to how can we make this task less ambiguous for them right i really really like that question because i think the one thing about this task where we can make it easier for students particularly students who are much less confident than others is to say that rather than text response essay that has to respond to the question and it has to rely on interpretation, it has to have a certain structure and paragraphs, essentially at its core, and I mean like at the, at the absolute fundamental level, like to receive an S, a student just needs to be able to say that the writer has used a certain argument, provide evidence of that argument, and then have something there that talks about why that argument was used. And and so that's why we have all those acronyms and, and what, how, why, and all those types of things. So at its core, if a student was to say, the writer used this type of argument when they said, quote, whatever it was, by doing this, they were able to lead the reader to feel whatever it might be. That's the task, you know, and there's so much more that goes on top of that to make it better and, and to improve it and everything like that. But with some of those students that are really getting so caught up in all the millions of different things that it can be, that can be that way that we can make it straightforward for them. That essentially at at its base level, that's what this task is asking you to do. And then you just repeat with all the different things that you found. And so if that's that entry level, that's where they start. And then on top of that, of course, you know, it's the level to which they, you know, the insight to which they show and and the manner in which they embed the evidence and the, the insight they show with the different arguments that they've identified and been able to analyze and all those types of things. So there's so much more that goes on top of it. But by being able to break everything else away, I think sometimes students can get a little bit overwhelmed by all the different ways that we teach it and all the different things that happen when really we can strip it back and say, if you can tell me something that the writer did and tell me why they did it because it was going to impact the, the reader in a certain way, you've done the task. Yeah, mm. that doesn't mean you're going to go well with it because if you were just to write those very basic sentences, like I said before, it's going to be an extremely, you know, sort of uh, base level thing. But I yeah. think that can be the way of attacking that thing where students feel that they need to explain the article to you and so on. That that to me always shows a student that's sort of spinning their wheels because they're not sure of what they can do or what they what they need to do. And so I also think that can sometimes help some of the more capable students because 
again, it's like saying to them, well, you, you don't need to impress me with all this other stuff. No. Just really get all those different ways that the language has led the reader to think, act, feel, and show me those in depth and detail, and and I'm happy and and repeat that. And and you know, I used to say that to to teachers that I used to work with that they I used to say that I I really admire and like the top students that are quite ruthless. And when I say ruthless, I just mean it's like they start analysing and they just don't stop. Yes. you know, for for the whole thing, it's it's focused and it's like, and then this happened, and then they and then the you know, and the writer did that coupled with this and it led to this and the writer, and it's like every time they're like a dog with a bone, they're just going straight at, okay, this happened and it led to this sort of feeling and and think, act, feel. And rather than wasting any time with explanation or, you know, evaluation of arguments or anything, all this other superfluous stuff, it's just like, no, I know what I'm here to do. And it's about think, act, feel and that impact on the reader. So making that as just clear as possible. I think it's sort of come up a few times. Yeah. It can be useful for all students, but then giving them where we start to teach differently and, and start to differentiate and everything like that is to say, all right, to what level can you do that? That's when we start to, to change things up. But having them understand what that fundamental focus is, I think is, is a really key part of it. I think as teachers, we are so well-intentioned with all of our acronyms and sample pieces <laughs> and here's how you can write it and look at how I've done it. You can do that too. You can copy. But at the end of the day, all of those things are not as important as a student understanding the task and finding their own voice and doing it their way as long as they are ticking off every single box. And I think that rather than trying to do what you think is impressive for your teacher, you need as a student to find your voice in your own way into this task and to let your teacher be your kind of sounding board. And that's how I hope to be over the next three weeks while I'm trying to get my year 12s ready for this task is that I want them to do as many practices as they want and come back to me as a sounding board rather than can you show me how to do it. I'd much prefer yeah. them to give it a go and for me to say you've done this really well, this can be improved, but this is the, this is the real strength in your writing, work with that. Yeah, I really want students to start doing that and to take ownership over their own voice and writing and style because I think that's what English is and that's why English is so hard sometimes <laughs> because it's just a tick subject. Yeah. I, I think I know that I could take for granted sometimes that, you know, these 20 kids that were standing before me, you know, they just come from chemistry or health or PE or, mm -hmm. you know, um, psych or whatever. Whereas we're like, come on, this isn't that hard. You know, in your head, you're obviously not saying that to the students, but you think, come on, it's not that hard. But you're like, no, they've got all these other subjects and all these other things going on, particularly if they haven't, you know, achieved with English in the past. So I don't think that we can be too explicit in pointing that out. I'm really, um, I think that's such a really good question, that, that last one that that teacher asked, because I think that can be valuable. And it's something that I used to say to the students is like at, at its base, and, and you can do the same thing with the other two examinable areas. It's like with the comparative, we can get so caught up in, oh, you know, ways that we see it and political and personal and this and that and text A and text B and comparative language and vocab. And there's all these layers that can confuse students and we have to teach them those things. That's how we get sophistication and thought and all those types of things. But there probably are going to be those students that just need to say, at the end of the day, you are doing this task when you compare those two texts or when you analyse this language or when you answer that question in section A and, and, and show an interpretation of the text and then showing them in modelled work of saying, right, well, that's the sentence that really nails it because that's where I'm doing the task. 
Everything else mm -hmm. around it was leading to that because that is what this task is about. And I think the more that we can do for that, you know, the, for, for students, the, the clearer we make it for them and, and the, the more confidence we give for them to be able to do things because they're not scratching through going, what, what, what am I meant to be doing and all that? It's that they've got that first base that this is what I must do and then I can improve upon that once once I get there. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ben. I'm going to push this out really quick to help my students cool. specifically but also any other <laughs> student and teacher that is going through this Unit 3 SAC. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I'll put all of your info in the show notes, including those incredible YouTube clips as well. Oh, cool. You thank are just you, such yeah. a great Thank you. Oh, you're more than welcome. Thank, thanks for having me on. And yeah, that'd be great because a lot of the things that I've said tonight, you know, I've got, I think I even have a video on the 2017 um, Denise Walker, you know, piece from last year. So a lot of them are exam based, but, you know, students that are listening to this that are really struggling, there is a video that's there that's like, you know, this is brass tacks, like this is the nuts and bolts of the task and, and students that are doing really well with it and, and finding it easy, there's a video for them too. So if they want that further support, it's, it's there on YouTube. So I appreciate that. That'd be uh That'd be great, but thank you for having me on. Pleasure. Thank you so much. I always enjoy our chats. Absolutely. Me too. Thanks, Laura.